0: Hello my friends in podcast land, welcome back. My guest today is Massimo Pellucci and we are talking about Stoicism. Now you very well may have heard Stoicism be thrown around a lot recently, it's been popularised by authors like Ryan Holiday and Massimo himself, but it's ancient, it's two and a half thousand years old, why are people bothered about this ancient philosophy now? So I decided to get an expert on who can explain it to us. Now, there's quite an interesting history to how Stoicism developed, but I wasn't bothered about going into that today. What I wanted to get out of Massimo were the practical underpinnings. What is the philosophy of Stoicism? How can we apply it to our lives? What are the modern interpretations and adaptations of how we can use this ancient wisdom in a modern way? As you can see, perfectly fits the show's title There is so much to take away from this episode and a lot to think about. What I also wanted to get out of Massimo were some exercises which you can apply to your life today or tomorrow, which will allow you to implement these stoic principles and hopefully make you more resilient, happier, and less prone to anxiety or negativity. So if you stick around until the end, you will get five practical lessons which you can use, exercises that you can do in your life which allow you to not only think and understand this philosophy, but to also enact it and to allow it to change your life for the better, which seems like a pretty good deal to me. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Secure your browsing online for less than the cost of a cup of coffee per month, and get access to the entire world's Netflix library. You're still stuck indoors, you're still watching tons of Netflix, so why not 10x, 20x, the size of the library that you have access to by getting Surfshark VPN. You might think it sounds like it's super complex. It's not. You just simply download an app, and once you've logged in, you can swipe through. You can have it on as many devices as you want. So you can have it on your phone, on your iPad, on your laptop, whatever it might be. And it makes your browsing secure, and it stops people from price-checking you by doing naughty things with how much you're being charged and Netflix, yes, you need it. So head to surfshark.deals slash modern wisdom. They've upped the deal. It's 85% off and three months free and 30 days money back guarantee. 85% off, three months free and a 30 day, 30 a 30, 30, 30, 30 day, 30 day money back guarantee. Surfshark.deals slash modern wisdom. Go and upgrade your Netflix. Go and secure your browsing. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Massimo Pellucci. It seems like stoicism is kind of similar to the hot new girl in school you know that everyone's interested in she's just arrived here and everyone's Mm -hmm. thinking oh she's I want a bit of her everyone else seems to be interested in her so what is it about stoicism that's giving us this resurgence in the modern era I'm not seeing waves of books being written about a resurgence of Confucianism or Taoism you know what is it about stoicism that's that's made it the hot new girl
1: yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, of course, um, as far as hot new girls go, Stoicism <laughs> is about 24 centuries old. Um, so she's she's like, aging you know, well. She's aging definitely <laughs> very well. Um, I also want to make a point, uh, actually a uh, comment on your uh, observation that, you know, why Stoicism and not a lot of other philosophies. I've I've seen since, especially since this COVID um, brouhaha started and it's, it's, it's this all mess started, I have seen a lot of articles uh, on other philosophies, um, including Buddhism, Taoism, uh, uh, Confucianism, uh, uh, and, and if we go to the Western philosophies, also Epicureanism. But you're, you're right, those are the exceptions. Um, the, the overwhelming majority of things that I see are uh, is about stoicism. I think it's for two reasons, and I, I think there are actually two different reasons, depending on whether we're talking about other uh, Eastern, uh, sorry, either Western philosophies or Eastern philosophies. Um, Eastern philosophies are just not very Western friendly. That's one way to put it. Meaning that unless you grow up in, and vice versa, of course, Western, Western philosophies are not Eastern friendly. Because, meaning that if you grow up with a certain, you know, uh, language, background, culture, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it is less likely, that uh, something that a philosophy that comes from a very different language and background is going to speak to you. Like, for instance, when I, before I got into Stoicism, I was actually exploring a number of uh, possible philosophies of life, and I, of course, checked out Buddhism, because, which is reasonably well uh, you know, known and practiced even in the, in the West, although the Western version is significantly different from the original one. And it just didn't speak to me. I mean, I recognized intellectually, I recognized the, the, what they're talking about. I, I know what they're talking about. I, I appreciate their ethics, et cetera, et cetera. But the language, the examples, the, the, the way of, uh, you know, the, the writings, is just, it didn't click. And then I read Epictetus and I said, holy cow, how did I never hear about this guy before? I mean, this guy clicked immediately. And as I said, I, I suspect it's the same the other way around if you go west toward east. Of course, with plenty of exceptions. I mean, How to Be a Stoic, the first book that I wrote about stoicism has been published in Japan and Korea and China. So it's not like it, there are no, there's no audience. But it certainly is a fraction compared to Confucianism or Buddhism and so on and so forth. So I think that's part of the explanation in terms of Western uh, readings that you might have encountered. Now, the interesting thing is, well, why not Epicureanism or... You know, there's a little bit more about cynicism or whatever. Yeah, cynicism. Saying. Well, cynicism is pretty tough to practice for one thing. Living um, out of a pot what?
0: and 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 just
1: sort yeah, of yeah, you yeah. and
0: a, a couple of rags on the side of the road. Yeah,
1: right. It it doesn't cost a lot of money for, to to practice uh, uh, cynicism. That's you know that's a, a upside. Uh, so there's one book that came out recently on Epicureanism. This was before the the pandemics by a colleague of mine, Catherine Wilson, actually here at uh, City University of New York. Uh, you know, in, in a book that I co-edited recently called *How to Live a Good Life*, there is a chapter on Epicureanism. But yes, there is certainly the exception. The, what, most of what you hear about is uh, Stoicism. I think it's for a couple of important reasons. It's, it's not just by chance. Um, first of all, because Stoicism particularly speaks to, although although one can use it no matter what the situation, no matter what the personal you know conditions. It definitely speaks to uh, difficult times. It was born in difficult times. Uh, It was born during the Hellenistic period uh, between the death of Alexander the Great and the beginning of the Roman Empire. That was a major uh, time of turmoil in the Mediterranean area. Things were big changes that nobody saw coming and people felt like they didn't have control over what what the hell was going on there. Um, So, that's where that's that's the environment in which Stoicism was forged, and uh, it still speaks today to that kind of stuff. And you know, we are living in that kind of situation, obviously, particularly with the COVID, um, you know, uh, pandemic. But even before, I mean, Stoicism has seen a resurgence over the last twenty years or so, and even before. And what, why? Well, you know, think about it. Over the last century, we went through two world wars, not one. All right? Um, We are looking at at the possibility of global climate collapse. We are still uh, uh, threatened constantly by nuclear annihilation. So it's like, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on um, that uh, sort of makes these times pretty similar to the ones uh, uh, during the Hellenistic period. So that's one reason. The other reason is because unlike a lot of other philosophies, including Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, and so on and so forth, Susan actually comes with a lot of, Practical advice, practical access—actually, access, actual exercises you can do in, in you know, day to day, week to by week. Aristotle's uh, ethics, for instance, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics is the book where the major book where Aristotle uh, put forth his his ethics. It's very interesting from a sort of theoretical perspective, but Aristotle wasn't interested in in living that as a philosophy of life, and so he didn't give any particular you know actual ground rules, or, you know, what? Do you, okay, what am I going to do about this? Epicur- Epicurus got a little closer, but even he was n- not that interested, for one thing, in proselytizing. He wasn't really writing uh, that much about, you know, how to put this into practice. It was kind of general advice. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes stoicism is the fact that there is a lot of emphasis on the practice. I mean, if you don't practice, you're not doing anything. And stoics are very clear about this. Epictetus uh, says several times in the discourses to his students, like, you know, if you guys are here just for the theory you're wasting your time and mine
0: yeah it's um it's interesting to see some of the surface level information that I, I come across online on the internet about different philosophies both ancient and and modern and um you're right some of them appear to be s- kind of just thought experiments from an armchair and then others yeah. appear to be uh thinking tools to be weaponized, almost. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, so, so let me give you an example. So I have a, a close colleague and, and friend um, uh, who is an existential, existentialist philosopher. And existentialism actually has been, you, you might have seen coming, you know popping up, especially now, for instance, uh, in the middle of the pandemics, uh, one of the best-selling books uh, is uh, uh, Camus' The Plague. Not surprisingly, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, although I have actually read recently, just like a couple of days ago, that people are running out. You know, uh, uh, prices are running out of copies of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations and uh, and wow. Seneca's writings. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's really amazing. Now the problem is, you read the existentialists, and yes, as a general framework, that sounds that's that's interesting. There there are some things to really think about and and sort of that might be helpful in practice. But it's not like existentialists actually laid out a coherent philosophy of life to follow. In fact, they kind of, on purpose, refused to do so. Most of them actually rejected even the the label, existential, including Camus. So, and, and most of them wrote novels, not philosophical treatises, right? So you do get, uh, get what they're getting at. You get the idea, um, but it's, you know, you get to the end of the novel and you say, okay, now what? uh how do i how do i how do i go existential here do i just start you know drinking a lot of coffee and and smoking a lot of cigarettes uh or is there something else to it and you know i'm of course teasing to some extent uh, you might want to talk to my friend sky clear about it she, she might have different ideas but nevertheless you know that was one of the things that um that i found not particularly pinning you know where, in a philosophy of life where, if I can understand the point sort of at an abstract level, but then I immediately wonder, okay, and now what am I supposed to do about it? Uh then that then, then seemed to be that seems to be an issue.
0: Yeah, it's the um the very fancy app that you've just downloaded onto your phone that looks great and sounds wonderful in principle, and for some people it might work. But for you you just you open it up and you're like, I don't understand how any yeah. of this happens. So what I want to try and do, I'd love to get you back on and talk about the history of Stoicism, how it came about. And as the listeners will know, I went to Athens for my birthday and I stood in the Stoa Poikle, which nice. is where nice. Stoicism was founded by Zeno of Citium. Yes, Yes. That's right. See, I've been doing my research, Massimo. I've Apparently. been doing my research, ready for you. <laughs> Flew all the way to Athens on my birthday, ready for this podcast. Um, that's an
1: expensive <laughs> bit of research, but <laughs> hey, you
0: know, look, sure. It was painful, obviously. Um, I'd love to get you back on to do that. But what I really want to do today, especially given the fact that we're period of turmoil, people are pivoting within their life, there's a lot of uncertainty, people require more robustness, more resilience, all that sort of stuff. I want to, I want to really try and get into the nuts and bolts of what are the principles that underpin Stoicism that people need to understand to give them the foundational knowledge. And then let's talk about some of these exercises. Let's talk about how people can take these principles of Stoicism and apply them so that hopefully tomorrow, if they come up against a difficult situation, they might be able to use it a little bit and then that domain of competence hopefully will grow and grow and grow and then maybe we finish off with some uh, some cool book recommendations certainly some of which will be will be yours and then some other reading people want to get stuck into it so sure. where do we start soicism 101 where do we begin
1: well let's let's start with a couple of the basic principles that are immediately applicable to you know people's lives um so there are two of them that I think we, sh- we could start with. One is the, uh, the, the four cardinal virtues. So the Stoics um, recognized four fundamental virtues, meaning character traits, meaning things that you need to work on in order to become a better human being. And the notion was that is that you use these four as kind of a, almost as a compass to navigate your life, a moral compass to navigate your life. Basically, everything you do, you should be asking yourself, okay, how does that square against the four cardinal virtues? So it's kind of a checklist, right? Check one, check two, check three, check four. So the four cardinal virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is the one that I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on because it's the one that usually people have trouble understanding. And also it's the one that really doesn't roll off your tongue. <laughs> Practical wisdom is like whatever. Um, the, the the Greek term is actually phronesis. And um, essentially this is the knowledge of what is truly good for you and and what is truly bad for you. Now, we grew up with certain ideas about what is good for us and what is not good for us, right? Those ideas come from society at large, from our parents, from our friends, and so on and so forth. So for instance, a good number of Westerners will think that what is good for you is, you know, um, a good job, you know, a good career, uh, certain amount of money, health, you know, good relationship, some friends, you know, that sort of stuff. For the Stoics, that's not quite the case. All of those things are preferred, Meaning that if you have them, that's great. Uh, but really, they're not what is truly good for you. The only thing that is truly good for you is good judgment, is arriving at a good judgment about situations. Um, why is that? Well, because all of those other things that, that, that I just mentioned, you may gain or lose at any time in your life. Right? You might gain a new relationship and it's great, and then you lose it, or you might make money and then you lose it and you might get a job and then you get fired. You know, that's all that sort of stuff. It's not really under your control. It's stuff that happens. And sure, you can work on it. You can make it more likely to happen for sure. Um, But ultimately, it doesn't really depend on, on you. And in fact, the value of all those other things really depends on how you behave with in, in respect to those things. So for instance, having money, it's not an unqualified good. It is good if you use the money well. But if you don't, if you use your money to you know corrupt politicians so that you have your own way and write your own laws, for instance, that's not good. Then then money is not a good thing. Um, so in other words, the notion is that the that the fundamental thing that is good for you is good judgment, because good judgment is what allows you to use everything else in the best possible way. Similarly, or as you know, I should say, conversely, the only really bad thing that for you is bad judgment. Okay? So it's the opposite of it. Why? Well, because bad judgment is going to make you squander your money, you know, lose your relationships, lose your friends, lose your job, and so on and so forth. So judgment is really the only thing, according to the Stoics, that is, that is important, that is crucial. And so the, um, the first cardinal virtue, practical wisdom, basically reminds you, constantly that the only thing you need to work on is your judgment or constantly improve it so whatever makes you makes refines your judgment makes you better better it's good and whatever makes it worse it's bad that's the first virtue got it second courage courage is not you know <laughs> necessarily physical courage or the courage to rush into battle or anything like that it's moral courage so it's the courage to do the right thing that's related to the third cardinal virtue, which is justice. What is the right thing to do as far as other people are concerned? That that comes down to justice. You need to, to treat people justly, fairly, as you would like to be treated, essentially. right? Notice the difference between the first and the third virtue. First virtue, practical wisdom, is about what is good for you. The third one, justice, is about what is good for other people, in terms of how you behave toward other people.
0: I'm gonna right? guess those those two come into conflict quite a lot.
1: Well, that's one of the things that you have to, you know, to, to to handle, learn to handle. And then the fourth virtue is temperance. Temperance is often understood as doing as little as possible, but that's not quite right. Uh, temperance means doing things in the right measure, neither too much nor too little. Okay. So let me give you a, spe- a specific example uh, where we can see all the four virtues working simultaneously. Because that's the notion that anything important that you're going to do, you should ask yourself, well, is this practically wise is it courageous is it just and is it temperate and if the answer is no to any of those things then don't do it
0: oh god my decision making is going to take a little bit of time if i like what do i want for breakfast tomorrow oh god are these yeah are these cocoa pops that that actually
1: applies even to things like breakfast Um, i love breakfast i know i yeah I, I, i actually i don't have breakfast i usually have just the fruit but and coffee, of course. Yes, definitely, coffee. Coffee is all all, right. coffee
0: meets all of the four criteria. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. No it's div- it's essentially, <laughs> I think, coffee to a stoic would probably be divine.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's it's it really got, comes pretty close. Now, so let's say that you are at work, and um, a coworker is being harassed by your by your boss, and then the question is, well, should you intervene or not? So should, should should you take the, the the side of your coworker and basically tell your boss, hey, you know, slow down here. Well, let's up, apply the four virtues. The first one is, as I said, practical wisdom. Well, practical wisdom I put it in terms I present it in terms of judgment, but another way to present it is in terms of improving your character. Okay. Because judgment and character goes, go well to you know, go hand in hand essentially. If you have a better and better judgment, then that means your character is improving and becoming a better person. and vice versa if you have bad judgment, your character is going down the drain. So if you think of in terms of character, well is it good for your character? Of course it is because you're doing the right thing by your coworker. that is good for your character. that improves your character. If you decide not to do the right thing, that undermines your own character, that undermines your, you know, it makes you a slightly less less good person, right? So think of it that way. Is it is this thing making me a better person or, or a less good person? Well, clearly intervening makes you a better person. So the first turn is a yes. Or is it courageous? It is because we're talking about your boss. So your boss could would not take might not take it well and you might retaliate and you might lose lose your job or at least get on the wrong side of, of the boss. So yes, it does take courage. Uh, what about justice? Is it the just thing to do with, with as far as your co-worker is concerned? Yes, obviously, because if you were in, 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 in the co-worker's situation, you would want somebody to step in and help you out, right? So it's You're treating him. Three for three so far. Yeah, three for three. Now, what about temperance? Well, so temperance tells you that you want to do things in the right measure. So that means you don't want to just mumble under your breath about something so that your boss doesn't actually hear it. Because that's not enough. You haven't done anything at that point, right? You appeased your conscience, but you haven't done anything. By the same token, however, you also don't want to rush to your boss and punch him on the nose, because that <laughs> seems like a little bit of an overreaction given the situation, yep. right? Yep. So Temperance tells you that probably the right thing to do is to politely and but firmly say something along the lines of, hey, you know, let's talk about this situation, you know, there, there's, there's a different size to the story, blah, blah, whatever this, the thing is. So all the four virtues concur Seneca says at one point that the, 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 the four virtues are like a concert, of different instruments, and they have to play in unison. Mm. There has to be no discordant notes there. So all of, the, all of the four in this case will tell you, yes, do it. Go ahead. Now, more often than not, um, the virtues will, t- at least one of the virtues will say, "Nah, <laughs> no, that's not a good thing to do. And therefore you want to refrain. In fact, Stoics tend to refrain a lot from things. It's like um, you know, the famous commercial, you know, just just do it. Mm. And yeah, it's it's kind of the opposite. Just don't just, just do wait. It. Stop and think about it. Yeah, just <laughs> wait. Know, so slow down and think about it. Because as it turns out, um so, so, so uh, Socrates, who was a uh, the major inspiration for the Stoics, um used to say that he that he had a, a daemon on his shoulder. Daemon is a is a demon. And essentially you can think of it as an externalized uh, version of your conscience okay and um, and he was asked uh, so was how does your daemon advises you to do things and not or not to do things and and uh, socrates said um, most of the times just says a single word no <laughs> don't do it <laughs> because if you think about it a lot of times we get in trouble simply because we do we rush into doing things that um, um, Upon thinking about it, is like, man, that was not a good idea. Mm. That was that was not a that was not a good thing.
0: Do you think that the hesitancy or the measuredness of uh, not br- <coughs> brashly committing to actions is that why? Because to be stoic. Actually has taken on a a meaning of its own right when you right. say to people in the modern world that guy over there he's quite stoic with you know it kind of means someone who's stiff up a lip us Brits would probably be you know a fairly Absolutely. good example um Absolutely. stiff up a lip and he's fairly sort of resilient maybe a little bit surly as well you know he's in the corner kind of scowling right. scowling at everyone um right. is, is that why? Is that why you, yeah that i think it, i
1: think it is and so you know that's a stereotype and, and i think it's an accurate stereotype but like many stereotypes they do have a kernel of truth exactly there's a kernel truth in fact the two things that are stereotypical about the stoics are the ones that you just mentioned and then the other one is that that, that we go around um suppressing our emotions right which which are related it's like stiff upper lip and then suppression of emotions well the reason people say that, got that impression about the Stoics, is because the Stoics are, in fact, in the business of enduring things. Endurance is a Stoic value. Right? If there is nothing you can do about something, then what are you complaining? What's the point of complaining? You're just going to feel worse. Uh, you're just going to make things worse because not only you cannot actually address the, 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 the specific problem, but now you're also making it worse in your own mind by as a modern cognitive behavioral therapist would put it, by catastrophizing it, by by making it into this gigantic thing that, that you say, oh, my gosh, this I can't believe this is happening. It's like, what do you mean you can't believe it? It's, it is happening. It's a fact. <laughs> so in what, in what sense can you not possibly believe it, right? Um, so that's one thing. And then the, the, the thing, the bit about the emotions is it is true that the Stoics, the Stoics don't, don't want to su- suppress emotions partly because, it's a hopeless thing, and you simply cannot suppress emotions. Um, what what we want to do is to uh, train ourselves to move as far as possible from what we consider disruptive emotions, such as anger, fear, uh, hatred, things like that, and to uh, mindfully cultivate what we consider positive emotions, and these include love and joy and a sense of justice, you know, a sense of the right thing to do, you know, that that sort of stuff. So, if you turn those two uh, tendencies or those two attitudes into a stereotype, then you get the the stiff upper lip with no emotion kind of stuff. Uh, But I wanted to go back to the practice. So I mentioned earlier on that that there is a second um, important bit of stoic theory that has immediate practical application And that is the so-called dichotomy of control. Uh, This is a modern term. You don't find it in the ancient Stoic texts. And it's an unfortunate term. It was introduced by William Irvine in one of his early books on Stoicism a few years ago. And as much as I like Bill, I think he actually did a disservice there Uh, because people get um, immediately the wrong idea when you you hear the term dichotomy of control. So the, the basic notion is goes back to Epictetus uh, right at the beginning of the Enchiridion of the manual uh, um, that he that his student Arian wrote based on his notes. Uh, Epictetus says, Some things are up to you, and other things are not up to you. And then he lists some the things that are up to you, and then he lists the things that are not up to you, and then he says, You should be concerning yourself with the first one and not the second one, which is pretty sound advice. If something, if there's nothing you can do about something, you might as well ignore it because. Mm-hmm. What are you going to
0: do about it? C- right. Can you um, remember any of the things that he says? Absolutely. Can you give us yes. a couple from the from the list? Yes.
1: Let's go through both lists, um, because those are really tell you a lot, both about Stoic practice and Stoic, Stoic uh, sort of and theory. And this is
0: this is 2,500 years old, 2,600 years old?
1: It's about 24th uh, 2, 2, century, so 2,400 uh, 2, years, the philosophy. Epictetus was more recent. He, was, uh, he wrote at the end of the... F- So he was active at the end of the first century, uh, beginning of the second century. Oh, practically modern. Yeah, practically
0: modern. Yeah, cool. So he just finished finished it up, emailed it over. It was just yesterday. That's right. Cool.
1: Okay, so some things are up to us and other things are not up to us. What kinds of things? Epictetus actually makes a list and he says, okay, the only things that are up to you are the following. Judgments, uh, you know, explicit judgments. Endorsed values and decisions to act or not to act. That's pretty much it. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, that's not a big list. It's a, it's a pretty short list. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, that makes it easy to practice if you think about it. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because you only have to those four things to, to 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 concern yourself about. So, what does he mean? So, explicit judgments me- meaning uh, the kinds of judgment that you actually endorse. You arrive at by reflection. So, like you know. It's good for me to have coffee in the morning. That's an explicit judgment. that's not it's not something you do automatically or instinctively. You just say, yeah, this is a good thing for me. That's an explicit judgment. Endorsed values uh, for instance, uh, sexism is bad. That's an endorsed value, okay that's that's a that's a you telling yourselves like, no, you know what I might have, you know, inadvertently engaged in in behaviors that may come across as sexist, but I actually think on reflection that sexism is a bad thing. I think that, you know, women ought to be treated as as men. That's an endorsed value as opposed to an implicit value because implicit values, they're more difficult to control. You may be doing uh, certain things, you know, behaving a certain way that you don't actually realize, but the explicitly endorsed values, those are the ones that you obviously tell yourself, yeah, this is a good thing to do or not a good thing to do. And then third, decisions to act or not to act. So for instance, it's like I don't know, two thirty in the afternoon here in New York. There's sun coming in the, my in my window, it's getting warm. So, you know, I feel like a beer. But I'm not gonna act on it. Because do it. I'm talking, we're all yeah. friend
0: we're all friends here. Just, we're all friends. That's party. But I'm not
1: gonna do it. Okay. For one thing, <laughs> for one thing, because I don't actually have a beer. Uh, and therefore I would have to go downstairs, we'll have to stop and then resume. That's not gonna happen. Also, I don't know. I think I'd rather keep my, my mind straight while I'm talking to you, and then I have a beer later on, right? Actual glass of wine, to be, to be specific. That is a decision to act or not to act, right? I made an explicit decision. Again, the emphasis here is on explicit, because sometimes we react uh, instinctively to situations. If, you know, somebody throws a, a ball at you, and you catch it uh, without even thinking about it. That's not an explicit uh, decision to act or not to act. Great. So in, in other term, in other words, Epictetus says that the only things that are completely up to you are the things that you decide to do or not to do or to endorse or not to endorse, right? Upon reflection. They're up to you in the specific sense that the buck stops with you, right? So if you say, hey, I think that um, sexism is actually a good thing, you know, because I don't, you know, I don't know these women can't think I don't, I, don't, I don't buy it. And somebody says, what the hell are you talking about? Well, you are responsible for what you're talking about because this is your opinion. You you're, you know you can't say oh well, but somebody told me or or I read somewhere. Well, what it doesn't matter what somebody told you or what you read. The thing is, this is an endorsed opinion by you. The buck stops with you. You're responsible for it. Now, the second part, what is not up to you, right? So Epictetus lists a few things, and let me let me give you the short list: your body, your reputation, your wealth. And your relations. In other words, everything else. <laughs> <basically. Okay. laughs> now, what does he mean as when he says it's not up to me? Well, those things are not up to you. Consider since we're in the middle of a pandemic, consider your body, meaning your health. Right? Well, of course I can do, and epithetus knew perfectly well that of course you can do things to safeguard your health, right? You can eat uh, a good diet, you know, you can go to the gym and exercise regularly, you can do- go to the doctor f- to practice some preventive medicine, all of, the, all of those things. Or in the case of a pandemic, you know, you can go out, out uh, very little, you can wear gloves and a mask, you can disinfect your, your hands when you come back home. All of those things are obviously things that you can do. But ultimately, despite all those things, you may be unlucky and the virus is going to get you. There's no guarantee that that's not going to happen. You can do everything exactly right, and then the virus is going to strike you because it's a son of a bitch. Okay, so that means that health, although you can influence your health, ultimately the box doesn't stop with you. It stops to external with external events, with external factors, right? And the same exact thing goes for all the other things that I mentioned, so, like your reputation. Sure, I'm sure you're a good guy and you're a nice guy and everything. But, you know, all it takes is a smear campaign against you on social media and you're done. And you have no, no, no way to stop that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, your, your job, your career, obviously the best way to have your, a good career is to put uh, you know, the, the right amount of work into it, to do it seriously, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure, but then the economy goes down the drain and you lose your job right? So that's another external factor. Again, all of those things that are not up to you, then, that doesn't mean you can't do anything about them. That's that's, where, that's why the term dichotomy of control is a little bit funny mm. because people say, well, I can't control them, but I can influence them. Yes, you can, mm. but the buck doesn't stop with you. It, there's always going to be some external factor that is not under your control that might completely ruin your your plans so what, what would
0: you have called it if it wasn't dichotomy of control have you considered how you would have termed it
1: yeah i don't have a good good alternative part of, part of the reason i was stuck with the con- dichotomy of control is because it's catchy and nobody has come up with a particular a better alternative that. yeah right. exactly but notice that bitus doesn't call it anything it does it doesn't give it a name mm. <laughs> it
0: just it, it's one of those it's one of those things before gravity gravity didn't have a name but everyone knew what gravity was exactly
1: so we're stuck with it. That's fine. Right. But so long as we understand what what, we, what it what it is that we're talking about. Yeah. Now the the practical bit of advice therefore here, and it, this is really crucial. I mean I apply I've been practicing stores now for like five and a half years or so, give or take. And the dichotomy of control has become second nature to me. I'll give you an example in just just a second. But it's become second nature. So now when something happens, the first thing, the very first thought that occurs to me is, okay, what can I do here? And what is not under my control? What is it that I can? Where is my action? What's actionable, and what is not actionable here? That's basically what it comes down to. to. Now, um, when Epitero says you should focus on the first, and, and then um, take the rest as it comes. Okay, develop an, act, an attitude of equanimity toward the outcomes. For instance, let's say you're you're going out for a job interview. Okay. Which these days a lot of people are going to have to do once this all stuff is 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 uh, is is over. Um, well, it comes natural to us to focus on the outcome. Right? I want the job. That's that's what I'm worried about. That's what I that I, that's what I focus on. But that, according to Peter, is is exactly the wrong thing to focus on because actually getting the job is not up to you. It's up to your boss, to whoever is in- interviewing you, right? Whoever the, is on the other side. It depends on your competition. It depends on a bunch of things. It depends on random factors, like maybe the, the guy interviewing you got off the wrong foot of the, of the bed yeah. this morning and he's he's, not, he's in a bad mood, you know, whatever it is. What is up to you? Well, What is up to you is to prepare for the interview, to put together the best resume you can, to take the interview seriously, to dress appropriately, to address people in, in the way that you're expected to, all of that sort of stuff, to focus and not get distracted by other things during the interview. All of those things are up to you. But The notion is that you focus on the things that are up to you, and then you say to yourself, okay, but this is life. And I know that sometimes in life, you know, I'm an adult. I know sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. This may be the time that I'm going to lose, and it's okay. I'm okay with that because it's not my fault. If I'd done everything that I could up 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 to this point, then I don't have myself to blame for anything is the circumstances and guess what if I don't get the job today There will be another interview tomorrow or next week or, or next month and so on and so forth So the notion is another way to think about this is that the notion is to internalize your goals We tend to externalize goals. We tend to go after outcomes Right. Oh, I'm, I'm, i I want to get married. I want her to say yes. I want this job I want to make money. I want all of these are outcomes and none of them are up to us. Only our efforts are up to us. So if you refocus, you know, internal internally instead of externally, and the, the advantage is, first of all, as you know, there is a pretty tight correlation between the two. The more you actually do a good job internally, the more likely you are to actually, in fact, succeed externally. You know, the, the two are not unrelated. But you also gain peace of mind. Because you get into any situation from the start by saying to yourself, okay, hopefully it'll go my way, but it might not, and I'm okay with that. Can, and it's, it's really powerful.
0: Can um, taking a philosophy like that lead people to apathy?
1: It's funny you mentioned the word apathy because one of the goals of stoic practice is what the ancients uh, uh, referred to as apatheia, which is a Greek word that in fact is the root of apathy, or the word, the English word apathy. But no, that's the meaning is different. Apatheia was not apathy as we understand it today um, the the root uh, it, it, the, the answer is in the root so apatheia is made of two words a the, the first you know a e, and patheia a e means without okay and patheia means uh, negative emotions so to be apathetic for a stoic doesn't mean that you don't give a, a crap about things it means that you're not disturbed by negative emotions, you don't have anxiety, you don't have fear, you don't have. I
0: much prefer. Hatred. I much prefer the Athenian definition <laughs> of the word. Yes. That we need. There's no um. There's no modern equivalent. No, There's that term, resilience isn't it? Robustness yeah, isn't no. it? Nope. We no, need no a, We need to make a word for that. I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah. So, but now let me go back to answer your question. So, no, the notion is not to. Uh, you know, not give a damn or sort of be laid back and all that sort of stuff. The notion is simply to make what I would think is an adult uh, consideration, choice, and say, look, I'm going to do my best. So I'm not going to be apathetic in the sense, in the modern sense of the the word. I'm going to do my best. But I have to accept that things are not going to, I'm not a child anymore. I have to accept that things sometimes are not going to work my my way. And if that happens, I'm not going to, act like a child, I'm not going to throw a tantrum. I'm not going to get upset. I'm going to say, all right, next round. I'm going to to do better next next time around.
0: On the um, hopeful side, you've mentioned there about how you don't get the job, but you are hopeful or you are um, almost certain. I'll get get the next one. What's the virtue of hope or the virtue of positivity toward oncoming events?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, The Stoics are not into what we would today call positive psychology like oh yeah things are going to go well Mm. because you have no guarantee that things are going to go well that's that's in fact yeah you've got to have this you've got to
0: have both edges of the sword right
1: right but what you do have is you reason about the the human predicament predicament you're you're capable of reasoning about things and you know that luck who the stoics actually personified as a as a deity right as a as a goddess fortuna fortuna right and you know, by the, Fortuna, by her own nature, sometimes you know throws things at a random. So, sometimes you will go your way, sometimes you won't go your way. And the notion uh, that Seneca particularly is um, uh, puts forth in several of his writings is that the way to come to terms to to, to, to uh, approach the situation is to have Fortuna come to terms with you. You don't control Fortuna. Fortuna does whatever the hell she wants, right? But you make her come to terms with you because you are prepared ahead of time mindf- in a mindful fashion and say, all right, I know that this is going to have a 50-50 chance, but if it's not going to work this time, then by virtue of that 50-50 chance, that means the next time I'm going to have also a 50-50 chance. And one of these days, I'm going to get it. Mm-hmm. So it's not really optimism as much as a realistic understanding of what the situation is.
0: Um You may be familiar with this, but Alain de Botton from The School of Life, he has a wonderful bit. I've seen him give the same talk twice now on his his book in Emotional Education. Mm -hmm. And you may be able to uh, pad out this story that I'm about to tell a little, but I think he said that in ancient Athens, the people that were homeless, that were the beggars on the street, that were potentially sort of diseased and stuff like that, they were referred to as unfortunates. I think that that was the etymology of it, right? Unf- yes, that's what, right. what was the Greek
1: word? Yeah, unf- unf- unfortunate. Uh, I think it's because.
0: Okay, so, so yes. they were referred to as unfortunates. Um, and he rolls yeah. the clock forward and we get ourselves into the 21st mm-hmm. century. What's the equivalent? The people that are listening, I'm going to give you a couple of seconds. What's the equivalent of an unfortunate in today's vernacular? It's a loser. That's what they call it, right. but the people that don't, it's a loser. And what's right. happened, what Alan argues, and I, I think I believe, I, I agree with, is that um, in a meritocracy, which is what we say that we have now equal chance, equal ability, all that stuff. Right. Uh, not equal ability, equal opportunity, shall I say? Right. Um, Be fondly. In yeah. A, yeah in, a, <laughs> in a meritocracy, if the people who succeed are worthy of their successes, That also means that the people who fail are worthy of their failures. And that shift from the unfortunate to the loser, I think, is a real, a a very easy way to see why society may be less empathetic toward the people who don't have the the, the haves and the have-nots.
1: Yeah, and it is an incredibly unfortunate shift. Because I think that the ancient Greeks in general and the Stoics in particular were right about this, that it is a matter of fortune. Now, uh, meaning not that, um, that that the outcome has nothing to do with your, with your efforts. Of course it does. No question about it. And there are some people who are responsible for their own down, downfall because they do make bad decisions, you know, that this is a fact of human life. But those people... Uh, include very rich people or very powerful people. I mean, the hi- history is replete with, you know, powerful and rich people who make really stupid or really bad decisions, and then, you know, and that's their down- downfall. So it's not a question of abdicating responsibility. It's a, que- it's rather a question to understand that, that external events will hit people, even the best people, even the people that make the, the, the best effort. They, w- they will be hit because Fortuna doesn't care. Fortuna is kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a random, it's a random thing. Fortuna can so, be a
0: bit of a bitch sometimes, can't she?
1: Well, you know, but she can also be very good. Yeah. Right. Yep, yep, so yep. I was, for instance, I was reading. Uh, so I, I just, um, I'm just about to launch a uh, Zoom based uh, uh, book club that. Uh, oh, it's gonna how meet. cool. Yeah. Where can people meet. find out more about that if they're interested? Uh, go to my Meetup site, uh, which is the Stoa Nova. So go to meetup.com and, and search for Stoa Nova, yep. and you'll find it. Or actually, search actually, even better, search for uh, uh, Philosophy Book Club, and you'll find it. It's even easier because it's not just about Stoicism. But the first book, book that we're reading, uh, uh, the, the first meeting is scheduled for uh, May 11th, is The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. Not to be confused with The Consolations of Philosophy, Plural, by the Botan, right? And Boecius was a, um, one of the last Romans, basically. He was living in right at the end of the Roman Empire. He was a philosopher. He was also an advisor to the king. And he was doing very well for most of his life. His sons were doing well. His family was doing well. Blah, blah, blah. And then at some point, he was doing so well that some envious people started putting rumors about him. And one of these rumors arrived to the king's ear. And as a result, he was accused of treason and condemned to death. Right? And he was executed, in fact. Now, when he was in prison in Rome, uh, he wrote the book, *The Consolation of Philosophy*, and he imagines in this book that philosophy, Lady Philosophy comes in, and basically tries to cheer him up. Right, and, and the, one of the first things that Lady, so it's a dialogue between him and, and Lady Philosophy. Some of it, some of it is poetry, and some of it is prose. It's, it's really a wonderful book. And Lady Philosophy, the, one of the first things that she does, like, so you forgot, you you're, you're upset about Fortuna. Right? You think that fortuna treated you unfairly, and 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 he says, "Yeah, of course it treated me unfairly. I mean, here I am, you know, condemned to death. I'm about to be beheaded. Like, what the hell?" And then philosophy says, "But so you forget all of the other good stuff that fortuna gave you, right? So for most of your life, you were much more lucky than most people in this in this country. Your sons are still doing very well. Your wife is still doing." very well your family fortune is untouched you're doing much better even condemned being condemned to death than most people around you so it's like did you not know that fortuna works this way that sometimes she gives and sometimes she takes somehow you got convinced that you among mortals were the only one that was only gonna get and never never gonna you know be taken from it's like come on it's like you she's she's shining him for essentially behaving like a child, forgetting his philosophical training and and expecting the impossible, expecting that Santa Claus keeps coming and coming and coming. It's like, no, sometimes it's just cold.
0: (laughs) And you have to deal with it. So let's get some exercises. Let's get some ways that people can apply some of the stuff we've spoken about and then some other principles as well. So you've already touched on one of them, which is when something happens, when anything happens, try and work out whether it is or with, is not within your control,
1: right? Yes, that's right. In fact, um, uh, with my friend and colleague uh, Gregory Lopez, we have written a whole book of Stoic exercises. It's called uh, A Handbook for, for New Stoics. I think in the UK the title is Living Like a Stoic or something like that. It's, I don't know for what reason they changed the title. It's confusing. But um, but anyway, we, we actually put together a entire curriculum for with 52 different exercises that people can sample. Uh, and see what works for them and what doesn't work for them.
0: Why don't yes. you give us? Why don't you give us your favorite five? Can you give us your top five.
1: Something like that. Yeah, something like that. So one of them is the one that we've been talking about, and the dichotomy control exercises can actually be done in the in the following way. Let's say that you are about to do something, uh, the outcome of which is in depth, such as the job interview that was talking about before. Well, the way you do the exercise is that in the days before the actual event or the night before, whatever whatever it's convenient for you, whenever you think it works for you. You literally sit down and write down, you you put a piece of paper or or a spreadsheet and you get two columns, things under my control, things not under my control. And then you start breaking down the situation and listening to yourself, the kind of stuff that is up to you and the kind of stuff that is not up to you. Um, And then the notion being that then on the next several days, you use, before the interview, you use that list to remind yourself, you go back to it, and remind yourself to focus on the first column and and prepare yourself about the second column. So that's one exercise. Another one of my favorite exercises is the, uh, uh, sometimes it's referred to as the evening meditation, sometimes it's referred to as uh, philosophical journaling. Because you can do it as a as an actual journal, as writing writing in a journal. That's the way I do it, but it doesn't have to be a, a journal. This is an exercise that comes comes from several Stoics. In fact, uh, Epictetus mentions uh, explicitly this this approach in the Enchiridion, and Seneca does it at the end of On Anger. And you can read the entire Meditations of Marcus Aurelius essentially as a journaling exercise because it was it was his own philosophical diary. That's what it was. Now, the idea here is not to write the Meditations because not we're not uh, every not everybody is, is Marco, Marcus Aurelius, and you know we're not that good uh, writers. And this is certainly not for publication. But the notion is, um, I tend to do it. I try to do it every night, but you can do it at least several times a week. It only takes a few minutes. You sit down. Pick a moment before you go to bed, don't do it in bed, otherwise you fall asleep. Before you go to bed, pick a moment where it's quiet and you can concentrate for a few minutes and write down uh, some thoughts about the major things that happened during the day, or even a single major thing that happened during the day. It doesn't have to be comprehensive. Um, And about that thing, ask yourself three questions. Number one, what did I do wrong? Number two, what did I do right? Number three, what could I do different, if, differently if this a similar situation arises again? But what's the point? The first question, um, what did I do wrong? The notion is not to you know beat yourself up and say, oh, I should have done this. I should have because the past is another one of those things. that's not up to you. It's outside of your control. You can't change it. You can't go back. And, and redo the thing, right? No matter how many times you actually rerun the thing in your, in the, what happened in your mind, you cannot change it. In fact, the Stoics would say, that's a waste of emotional energy because you're only gonna feel bad about it and that's it. Instead, however, what you do want to do is to learn from your, from your mistakes, right? So you wanna have, you wanna write down, it's like, okay, this is what I did wrong because you wanna pay attention to it. And then Seneca says, immediately forgive yourself. You have the power to forgive yourself. So write it down and then say, okay, that's done, out. I I learned my lesson. I hope not to do it again, but that's it. Second, what did I do right? Well, part of the reason for doing that is because pat yourself on the back. If you do something right, great. Um, You know, this is is progress. You're making, you're going the right direction. But also because now you have two points of reference, what you did wrong, what you did right. And the notion is that day by day, you want to move as far away from the first one and as close as possible to the second one. So you want to do fewer and fewer wrong things and more and more right things, right? And so if you keep it in mind as to, to, to posts, essentially to reference points, that's helpful. The third thing is, you know, what could I do done better? Why engage in the hypothetical? Because you know, we all like to think of our lives as extremely varied and unpredictable and all sorts of interesting things is gonna happen, but usually that's not the case. We kind of live the same life every day. You know, you you get up, you go to to work. Especially during lockdown.
0: We live the the exact same life every day during lockdown. Yeah,
1: Especially now. But even outside, right? So you go to work, you see the same people, you do the same kind of things. Then you get back home, you see the same people, you do the same kind of things. And you go out during the weekend, then you you see friends. Those are the same people and do the same kind of things. Of course, there is variation. Of course, sometimes you do something truly novel. But mostly we tend to be routine kind of people, you know, we, we do the same thing over and over, which means that it pays off to pay attention when you actually did something wrong, because you can you're gonna start saying, okay, well, this one didn't work out very well, but I know this kind of situation is gonna happen again, or something very similar is gonna happen again. So let me think ahead. The next time that something like this happens, what, what am I gonna do? And so I can give you a small example of how this works. This is a trivial thing. This this is the thing that happened years ago. I was walking down in, you know, lower Manhattan. I was with a friend and I was obviously not looking very carefully where I was going. So this other woman who was also look, not looking where she was going, so bumps into me and she had a large Starbucks coffee thingy And it's went all over the place. Now, nothing terrible happened. We we're both surprised. And we both said, you know, sorry, and then. But we both then kept moving, right? And then I thought about it later, and I said, you know, I think that was mostly my fault. I was paying less attention than she was, <laughs> so it would have been nice to actually offer her to pay for the coffee. That's it's a small thing. It's like a couple of bu- well, it's Starbucks, so it's more than a couple of bucks. But anyway, um, it's not that much, and it would have been a nice gesture to do. The moment was passed who knows where that woman was, so that's done. But that kind of situation can happen again. You can bump into people. And if the next time you're prepared and you say, you know, something and like that happens again, next time this is what's gonna, what, what, what's gonna happen, this is what I'm gonna do, then you're prepared. And Seneca tells you over and over, a prepared mind deals better with situations than an unprepared mind. I so that. that's the point of the exercise.
0: The, um... Preparing for things by using existing experiences. I've been discussing this an awful, awful lot recently. And um, the analogy that I always use is, if I told you, Massimo, that you were going to fall into some quicksand a week from now, right now, at seven, three minutes to 8pm on a Wednesday night or whatever it is, um, and I said, you've got a week to prepare, and you spent the next week, you go online, you research strategies to get out of quicksand what's the most efficient way you might even dress dress slightly differently ready for the quicksand and then you'd be counting down on you the difference between that and me just pushing you into some quicksand now and saying good luck
1: the the difference it's huge
0: yeah absolutely because we really really struggle to make rational decisions when we're in the moment and Mm -hmm. um the listeners will be familiar michael malice said to any of his fans who are struggling, he's also living in Brooklyn, in New York, and uh, he said to any of his fans on his show, he's got these hundreds of thousands of listeners, anyone who's suffering with depression or suicidal ideation, when you're in your best mind, write yourself a letter. Write a letter to you when you are in the depths of feeling down and feeling depressed and tell yourself what you're going to do. Tell yourself to ring a friend, tell yourself to go for a walk, tell yourself to get a glass of water and do the things that make you feel good. Because that person then is you at your best, at your most rational, with all exactly. of your faculties intact. Whereas exactly. you, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling down, that's you in quicksand. And it's very that's difficult right. to strategize whilst you're also
1: executing. Exactly. And there's a lot of evidence from modern psychology, by the way, that this this this, this thing actually does work. Uh, uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with uh, Daniel Kahneman's uh, best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Now, Kahneman's, Research clearly shows that we have these two metaphorical systems. They're not actually anatomical systems, but these are metaphorical systems in the brain. One that is for very quick thinking in the moment, the reaction, you know, you're actually not even not even not thinking um, in the sense of, you know, sort of reflecting on things. It's just immediate. It's like that on the snap. snap. That's the fast one. And then we have these slower, you know, more deliberate, more, you know, uh, cognitive approach to things. And the idea is of stoicism is as much as it is possible, as much as it is feasible, switch from system one to system two. Slow down. Sometimes it's not possible, right? I mean, if 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 an assail, if some, somebody's gonna run out, uh, run after you, and you know, with, with a with a gun, and it never happened before, and it probably will never happen again, you're gonna do whatever system one says right? If it is duck, you duck. If it is scream, you scream, whatever, whatever it is. That's, you have to rely on your instincts and good luck to you, right? Uh, but if you can, and in a lot of situations, we don't, we don't, we don't actually live in war zones. We don't live in, in, a, in, a, in the savanna where the lion can be coming at any, at any minute. We tend to live in fairly structured societies where things happen at a slow, slower pace. So we do have the time to slow down and engage system two and say, okay, what is the best thing to do? By the way, even about the, the, the thing that I just said, which is that uh, you know, some situations, you just can't avoid engaging system one. Epictetus obviously did not know about system one or system two, but he had a pretty good idea that sometimes we react in the moment and sometimes we actually have the ability to think, right? One of the reasons he kept telling his students that they have to practice ahead of time, regularly, every day, right? That remind, be mindful, you know, do these exercises regularly. It's precisely because you wanted to make their decision making automatic, right? So when I said, for instance, if you remember a few minutes ago, I said that the economy of control is now automatic for me, right? So initially, when I started, started studying stoicism, I had to remind myself and slow down and say, wait a minute, what is under your control? What is not under your control? All right, let me make the list, right? I actually had to go and make the list. But after you start doing it on a regular basis, then it becomes automatic. Oh, I don't need a list anymore. It's immediately when a situation comes up, it has shifted from system two to system one. It's it's an experience that feels a lot like learning to drive a car. So if, I don't know if you remember, but when you start driving a car... Uh, even though I live in the United States I actually learned in Italy <laughs> so I had a chick stiff you know this, yeah, this kind of stuff yeah, yeah, an yeah. actual a real car in other proper words. Car,
0: a, yes, yeah, a proper car yeah
1: proper car and um, you know when you start learning it's like oh my gosh the, I have to all these things to think about it's it's the, it's the clutch and then it's the brake and then it's the it's the steering wheel and I have to look at the at the people outside and listen to the guy who's giving me stuff it's like whoa <laughs> all of that takes a lot of slow deliberate thinking and that means you're not a good driver. <laughs> initially right because precisely because Very you have to labored think isn't it of, yeah right but then you start doing it and the more you do the more it becomes automatic and so now you can you know can you can gingerly shift do here it while you're singing
0: the- singing to the music on the radio exactly. and thinking about the other stuff yeah isn't right. it isn't it interesting that you you are deprogramming system 1 you're right. creating what Corey Allen would refer to as the mindfulness gap which is what mm-hmm. I love. It's that it's that break in between stimulus and response. So you're de-pro- deprogramming system one, then allowing system two to come in, then reprogramming system two and habitizing it or systematizing it sufficiently exactly. frequently to then reintegrate the upgraded version of system one. And the beauty exactly. of that, um, I'm reading a lot of evolutionary psychology at the moment, a lot of Robert Wright and, and other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And- um, Oh, he's a good friend, yeah he's phenomenal man he's that guy that guy the moral animal everyone that's listening is like oh god shut up about fucking moral animal but um (laughs) until everyone's read it until everyone's read it i'm gonna keep talking about it so go do it and uh uh, yeah because we are energy conservation machines you know our evolutionary heritage is to is to expend as little energy as possible this is the literally the double-edged sword of habits right It's the fact that, that you want to automate as much as you can. But unfortunately, that means that you embed bad habits as easily as good habits and sometimes even easier. So you've got the, you've got the initial cost, right? To pay at the very start. Um, but it's inspiring to hear that someone like you has been able to, um, take something which sounds awfully labored, right? It's driving the car. It's, I got to get in and use the left hand and depress the clutch and then use it a little bit and find the biting point and all that stuff. And then now you've managed to instill this, you've instantiated it to the point where, as you say, it is that, and, and mercifully for me, um, I've seen an equivalent happen with my mindfulness practice. So Mm -hmm. I've been doing, um, a particular practice from Shinzen Young, uh, which has a focus on rest. And what happens is when you realize that you've become lost in thought, you label the thought as either see, hear, or feel. So visual imagery, Uh, auditory noise within the head, or somatic sensation. Label it as that, and then let it go and return to whatever it is that you're doing. And um, upon having sat on the cushion, doing that that one area of that one practice within this one school, probably maybe 150 hours now, not much more, so not a huge amount of time, certainly not by meditation terms, but not, not, not nothing. Um, and that's been maybe a year, year and a half, and now I find myself doing stuff, I'll be walking down the street and I'll, I'll realize, I'll be like, you're thinking about work later on, just enjoy the walk, focus on rest. And you just label it and let it go. And it's um, there's a degree of satisfaction that, again, I don't think we actually have a word for, but there is a degree yeah. of satisfaction right. to do with reprogramming your own mind. Absolutely. To be able to do that, and it is, there is, there's, not many, there's not many greater feelings than that, I don't think, than, than transcending no, right. your own nature.
1: You're right. And this is something that, that several traditions have hit on. Uh, the Buddhists have invented techniques to do precisely these kind of things, to to, to be more mindful and then automating, automating that, that mindfulness. Um, the Stoics, Aristotle, Aristotle kept saying that you know the way to improve your character is by practice. It's just the same way in which you get to Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice.
0: I want to, sorry, I know you're going to keep going. That quote about, um, uh, we are what we repeatedly do, excellence therefore is not an act but a habit. Was that Aristotle?
1: I I believe it is Aristotle. I believe it is in the Nicomachean Ethics, but I need to check that.
0: Okay, because I've seen equal number of blog posts discrediting it and saying it's someone else as saying that it was him.
1: No, it's I, I'm pretty sure it's, it is Aristotle, but it, and it may Good. not be the exact quote. It may no, be That's that fine.
0: That's like fine. It, right. I've got it. I've got it from the equivalent of the horse's mouth. So I'm yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm happy.
1: But uh, so so let me give you an example of, of what, what what I'm talking about. Um, as you know, we're on lockdown here. Um, with my wife, we are going to reach day 40 this coming Friday. Wow. Right. Yeah. So it's an kind of, yeah, it's an interesting situation. Okay. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, in the middle of this thing, um, we, we opened the refrigerator and the refrigerator is not working anymore. It's like, hmm, not a good thing in the middle of a it's pandemic. It's bad timing, right? It's bad timing. For one thing, because, of course, that literally means you cannot store a you know, reasonable quantity of, of food. Um, and also, our building um, has a policy against delivery of furniture for security reasons. During this period, while in, while in lockdown, new furniture, new appliances cannot be delivered. End of story. Okay. So now, normally, and by normally, I mean, you know, like several years ago, I would have gotten upset and I would have said, oh, God damn it. It's like, you know, this thing is like, not only we got a pandemic, but now we, we can't eat. It's like, oh, what are we going to do? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, the very first thing, you know, we looked at each other because my, my wife also is pretty aware. Um, of stoic principle so we look at each other and say, okay, what's actionable here? Well it's under our control well the first thing is to redo the shopping list moving away from stuff that uh, needs a refrigeration to you know dry foods like pasta uh, canned foods like beans and things like that number one that was the first the very first thing number two let's call the landlady and see what she says she might have some ideas this may have happened before you know for all I know so we call and she says well, um, I'm going to replace your refrigerator, but I can't do it now for the reasons that I just explained. you know they can't be delivered, appliances can't be delivered. But she said, I checked with the building, and it turns out that small refrigerators, like you know dorm kind level refrigerators can be delivered. So I just ordered one for you, and it's going to come in the next couple of days. That was it. Problem solved. <laughs> I mean, I still have the small refrigerator here because the big one still not working. Yeah. Um. And so now we switch to a uh, a diet of you know that includes some fresh food and yeah. then a lot yeah. of dry stuff and everything. And there was no getting upsetting uh, upset. There was no you know any no emotional response whatsoever. It's like we just look at each other and say, okay, so let's. This is an interesting challenge. Let's see what we can do about it. That's another trick, by the way, that the Stoics. Um, Deplo- deployed, and it turns out it's confirmed by uh, modern psychology. It's called the framing effect. So the framing effect in psychology uh, consists in the, in, the, uh, in the phenomenon that if you present the same exact information to people, but in two different ways, they will react differently depending on how the information is presented. For instance, you go to the doctor because you're worried about something, and the doctor says, all right, you got a 90% chance of making it through this. Or he says, all right, you've got a 10% chances of dying of this.
0: <laughs> don't want now, to be with that doctor. I right. Now, <laughs> the
1: factual inf- notice that the factual information is exactly the same. 90% survival rate is exactly the same as 10% uh, death rate. There's no, there's no difference at all. But as you just notice, people will react differently, right, depending on where you put it, this one way or the other. Now, the framing effect has been used by Stoics for more than 2,000 years, to uh, look at the same situation in a more productive way. Marcus Aurelius, uh writes in the meditation that if we find an obstacle, instead of banging your, your head against the obstacle and the, the obstacle is, is unbreakable, you need to find a new path. The obstacle becomes the way. Um, it becomes a, a new way of doing things, right? In the case of setbacks, one way to, to like the refrigerator issue, one way to react, which comes kind of natural is as modern cognitive behavioral therapists call it, catastrophizing. Oh my gosh, the refrigerator is not working. What am I gonna do? This is horrible. This is a catastrophe. This is a problem, blah, blah, blah. Or you can look at the same exact thing and say, that's an interesting challenge. So now I got a problem to solve. Let me let me see how I score on this challenge. And and you start taking notes and saying, okay, so here's how I reacted and here's what I did and so on and so forth. You kind of make it into a game essentially.
0: Was um was that a Marcus Aureliusism about was it called the equanimity game? Was it about if you fall off a horse, how quickly can you get back on? Was that Marcus Aurelius or am I making that up?
1: I don't remember that in in Marcus. Although I would
0: definitely, right, I've I definitely just ascribed something to Marcus Aurelius <laughs> that he has absolutely nothing to do with. I haven't
1: memorized sake. the meditation, so you, who knows? You, you could be. You I'm could be almost
0: right. certain. I'm probably not correct. But well.
1: but you see where where that goes. So so it's a it's exact same situation, right? But now you choose to apply a different frame. And the, frame, the new frame that you apply is actually productive as opposed to being, you know, kind of undermining yourself. Now, whenever I say that, people say, oh, but so that means that stoicism is just a mind trick. And I say, yeah, you know what else is a mind trick? Life. Everything else. Everything <laughs> yeah. is a mind trick. Well, that's the I thing. Mean, you know, from, right?
0: a, uh, from a neuroscience perspective, Sam Harris yeah. has this beautiful quote where he says, um, in a practical sense, Everything that we are seeing is a kind of a dream, except for the fact that we can control what's happening in this dream. We're watching it happen. Everything manifests in the mind, right? Yeah. And you, right. you only have that. The bottom yeah. line, if they, if the Stoics ran the controllable versus uncontrollable even further back, it would be what is inside of here, right? Of course. Um, right. We have three more exercises, but my first question is, do you think that Seneca and Daniel Kahneman would have been good friends? Because I think they'd have been fantastic, you know. Like that, I, I can imagine them as a crime-fighting duo, you know. Like yeah. like going yeah, around yeah, the streets yeah. of Athens at night, just <laughs> like throwing wisdom at people, doing loads of cognitive tricks. I think that be. I think that be. That
1: great. would have, that would have been something to see. All right, so quickly, because I think we're, we're doing pretty pretty good timing. Cool. So let's the three exercises, three exercises more. Um, yes. One of my uh, favorite exercises that I do on an occasional basis, not on a regular basis, is the sunrise meditation. This is found in Marcus Aurelius. There is a bit in the in the meditations where he says that, he actually ascribes this um, uh, this practice to the Pythagoreans, which means that it predates Stoicism. It goes back to the 6th century BC. Um, and it's a, it's a very simple thing. You just set up your alarm. Um, Make sure that you know, you check the weather forecast and so you know that it's either sunny or clear or quite almost clear. Uh, set up your alarm clock for about 45 minutes before sunrise, depending on how far you have to walk to get there. And then reach a location, grab your, grab your coffee, and then Get to a location where you can see the sunrise or as close to it as possible. Here in New York, it's next to impossible to see the actual sunrise. But you can see the, the sun low enough, you know, behind some level of buildings on the horizons. It's good enough. And then you just stay there and wait. Sip your coffee and and, and focus your attention on the fact that a star is about to come over the horizon, right? literally. Of course don't do what donald trump does don't look at the sun straight because that's a bad idea um just just you know look on the side or get some special glasses if you really want to look at it but the point is not to look at it the point is to experience um the event this is obviously a mundane event it literally happens every day right but we never pay attention to it because very few people take the time to actually you know set the alarm get up early go to the place and, and then just stay there for a half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever it is, and just think about, reflect about what's happening. Now, why would you want to do that? It's a way to reconnect with a broader, with a broader cosmos, with the reminding yourself that you are actually part of a gigantic uh, whole of which, to which you are connected by a, a unbreak, unbroken web of cause and effect. Okay. You may think that the sun has nothing to do with you, but in fact, literally, the sun is what keeps you alive, right? If there were no sun, you, there would be no life on Earth. Uh, as one of my favorite uh, scientists of all time, Carl Sagan, used to say, we're literally stardust, right? All of the elements that are, make up our bodies literally were forged inside a supernova somewhere in the universe, and that's where we come, come from. So. All of this is beautiful and it reconnects you in a sense of you know spiritual sense i don't want to use the word spiritual in any kind of mystical sense i'm not you know i don't i don't think it in those terms but it it transcends it's a sense of transcendence there is very good empirical evidence from modern psychology that a sense of transcendence is one of the best things long term that that might make people happy people that cultivate a sense of transcendence of course in some in many cases this is literally believing in a god right but that's not the only way to feel transcendence i don't believe in, a, in, in any particular you know in any god and and that to me is a way to um to do it um incidentally you also get a very early start in the morning on the day so you get a lot of stuff done that day
0: <laughs> and you've had a good <laughs> but, coffee first thing yeah i love right. it i love it that connection with nature big big yeah, way exactly, to transcend
1: connection with it. and there are other ways to do it i mean if you're in a uh, you know, when I was in, uh, I lived for several years in Tennessee. and I would go uh, whitewater canoeing, for instance. So for a whole day, I would be just myself and a friend or two, maybe in the middle of nowhere, surrounded just by water. And it's that's another way to do it. Uh, when I used to live in Italy, in a place, a small town north of Rome, I would actually go outside on purpose on nice evenings and look at the Milky Way, because I could see the Milky Way. Just stare at it, right? Now, I can't see that damn Milky Way from New York, so so that's not an option. Only one thing. If you're doing the sunrise meditation, don't cheat. Don't do the sunset. Because the sunset <laughs> is, is the too same. easy. <laughs> yeah. It's not the same. It's so too this, easy. So
0: there's part of this, uh, how would you say, kind of like a pilgrimage, a small pilgrimage right. that you need to make and the, is the the price that you have to pay is part of the... Correct. I love Correct. it. Number four. Yes. Number four, so Massimo. Sweet. Number four.
1: All right. Number four... Um, well, I have to say, the premeditation of a, an, an adversity is one of those that, those, 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 um, stoic techniques that I find particularly useful, although there is a couple of caveats. So the term in Latin is premeditatio malorum, which literally, well, not literally, which sort of translates to thinking about bad shit happening.
0: Um, so. <laughs> is that malorum like malady type thing? <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like as bad things. You know, yeah. Malorum as a malady, as a bad thing. <laughs> so, what when is it that you want to do this? Well, whenever you are facing a situation that might not turn out well for you, okay, like a pandemic, for instance. Yep. Right. Um, so, what does the meditation consist of? Well, you take some time to develop a in, in detail a scenario, a, a worst case scenario, and you ask yourself, you you actually visualize, uh, or otherwise make concrete, how you're going to react throughout this unfolding scenario, right? So what is the worst thing that can happen? Oh, I'm gonna end up in the hospital. That's the worst thing that can happen. Well, worst thing, of course, that can happen is not gonna die. But for that one, there's nothing you can do about it. So, you know, it's cool. okay, done. But you end up in the hospital, you know, in the emergency uh, unit or something like that. That's the worst thing, the worst case scenario, right? It's unlikely. Because for most, we need to remember that for most of us, this is actually an unlikely scenario. But nevertheless, it's possible. So the notion is, once again, you, you might notice that this is a recurring team. You want to make yourself prepared for that sort of situation, even though it's not likely to happen. But if it does happen, it's a tough one. Okay, That's not going to be just enough to say, well, what's under my control? Eh, that's going to be a tough one. So the premeditatio malurum means that you very carefully and deliberately work through your the, the, the worst case scenario and the way in, good, in which you're going to react to that worst case scenario bit by bit. Now, there are different ways of doing it. The modern way to do it, a popular modern way to do it, comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. There is, again, there is research here that shows that this does work. And it's in the, in the form of a visual meditation. So you close your eyes and then you, you kind of slowly go through a, a mental movie, basically, that, that carefully shows you to your mind's eye what the situation is going, how the situation is gonna unfold and how you're gonna react. The problem with that, there's two problems with that. Number one, it's easy to slip into um, an emotional state what are you doing, that sort of stuff, right? You're supposed to do it in a detached fashion. You're supposed to rationally think about what's happening, not emotionally. So, but the problem is that once you do it in as, as, a, as a visual meditation, a lot of people slip into the, the emotional mode, and that's bad because then you actually, in, instead of, solving, you know, of, of helping yourself, you actually cause yourself anxiety, and that's not a good thing. So you might want to do it uh, carefully. If you feel it doesn't work for you, then stop doing it. Uh, or doing uh, doing it under the supervision of a cognitive behavioral therapist, who would actually help you through the through the stages. However, there is another problem with the, so the the visualization exercise. Some people, like me, are not good at visualization exercises. If I close my eyes and I start thinking about something, I fall asleep. It's like I doze off. It's like nope, sorry, that's not going to do it. Or I get distracted, I, you know, I go somewhere else with, with my mind. So I have to constantly sort of bring back. It's like, no, no, no. That becomes like a Zen meditation. It's just too much work. So the way I do it is is different. Um, you can either write a letter to yourself or to a friend without actually having to send the letter. You just write it. It's a writing. It's a, or you write it as a fictional story, as a short story, as if you were to publish a short story on your blog or something like that. Again, you don't have to publish it. It's just for your own use, right? What's the point there? First of all, the the simple act of writing instead of thinking about it already puts some distance between you and the situation. It makes it more detached, especially if you write in the second or third person. So if you if you imagine that you're writing to a friend or you're writing to somebody else, um, or you write a story in the third person, you know, as a as a narrator. Um, that puts some distance and this may sound like oh you know like the small thing there's actually a fairly good research that shows that it makes a huge difference don't don't write that stuff in first person because first person you get emotional about it um, if you notice and if you go through the meditations by Marcos Aurelius is written in the second person he talks to himself in the second person he never says I do this I said always says you did that and so he had, he had this notion already way, you know, 2,000 years before modern psychology that it's a better thing if you if you actually detach yourself from, the, from this kind of stuff. So the, the premeditation of adversity, I think it's very good because on the one hand, if you do it right, it helps you exercise your, your fears and your anxieties um, because it becomes a way to externally, you know, objectively look at the situation instead of worry about the situation. And it also prepares you for that situation. Should, should that kind of stuff actually happen, um, you know, then, then you actually already have a certain scenario worked out in your mind for how you react. So that was exercise number four, I guess. Number four, let's finish it All off, right. big number five. Number five, at the cost of, being, uh, of sounding morbid, I'm gonna uh, put the meditation on death as one of my favorite exercises. Um, so here's the way, you, so, so the stories are big on death. Um, Can you be they big have, on death? Yeah, here, here let, me, let me show you how. Let me see, <laughs> let me tell you how. So, and in fact, on that, that one is one of those bits where they actually completely agree with the Epicureans. Um, death should not be feared. And the reason it shouldn't be feared is because, as Epicurus says, where death is, you are not. And where you are, she is not. Right? Meaning that you're not going to experience death. That is literally, by definition, the state of lack of consciousness. So you're not going to. Don't worry about it. There's no such thing as a, you know, Epicurus says, don't listen to the priests and the poets who are trying to scare you shitless about what happens after after the time. All they want to do is to scare you or to control you. Don't believe it. Don't don't be afraid because there's really nothing to be afraid of. Um, you might want to be concerned about. Before you get there, all right? How you get there? But once you get there, there's nothing to worry about. Now, the Stoics had an interesting positive take on death. Seneca, is special. The, Seneca wrote a book called On the Shortness of Life, <clears throat> and the Stoic perspective there is that we ought to live our life more or less as as if we didn't know where we're actually going to be, what was uh, our last day was going to be. That is, if, as if we had no idea when we're going to die. Turns out, we don't actually have any idea when we're going to die. Right? We have statistical expectations, obviously. You know, I'm 56. I'm a white, you know, Caucasian male living in New York. So there's, you know, I can look up actual statistics and I can tell it what my expectancy, life expectancy, is. But of course, I could go downstairs and do grocery shopping and being hit by a car, and that's it. That's the end of my There's not nothing else to do. So the point there is. If you are aware of the fact that you actually, if you take seriously, because we all know it, but we don't take it seriously. If we take seriously the fact that, you know what, this might as well be my last day, okay? Then all sorts of things follow. It's like, so what am I doing here? Uh, what am I, what, how am I spending this day? Uh, watching bad television? That seems like a bad idea. Um, running and, you know, reading a good book? Well, that sounds better. You know, talking to my friends? Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, watching, you know, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, playing a video game that it's going to make myself mindless. Nah, that's probably not that good. There is an exercise in the book with, with Greg, where we actually ask uh, people to say, look, look, list a number of tasks and ask yourself a number of things you do during a particular day. And, you know, just, just take a day of your life and then write down the kind of things you do and ask yourself two things. Number one, is this meaningful to me? And number two, would I be doing this on the last day of my life? It really puts things in perspective. It's a very, very, very hard question to ask. Right. And so it turns out that you can make a list of these things. And then, of course, the notion is to act on that list. So if it turns out, for instance, that being on social media is not the kind of thing you would do uh, if you knew that this was the last day of your life, then probably that's the kind of thing you want to do less.
0: I can no. see how yeah. this would tie in with the Epicureans and their yeah. a slightly hedonic uh, approach towards toward pleasure and... and, and, and
1: right. They like they that. put it in hedonic, hedonic uh, uh, perspective. The stoic says, basically, this is a way to restructure your priorities. Right? Since your life is short, rather speaking, certainly finite, short is a... It's a value judgment. It's just relative, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. It's relative. But definitely it's finite. You don't have an infinite amount of time. And so then the question is, what is your, the best use of your time, given that it is, in fact, finite? Um, Seneca says, you know, we, we are very concerned when, we, when people ask us for money. We keep track. You know, we give a loan to some people, even friends. But we track the money and we say, you know, we're concerned. You know, am I going to get it back? And then people ask us for our time. And we just freely give it. As if we had an infinite amount of it, but we don't. Not only we don't have an infinite amount of it; it cannot be repaid. You know, the money can't come back. The time doesn't come back. So, anytime that that um, you know we make a decision, like for instance, uh, let me give you the, the specific example of the conversation we're, we're having right now. Uh, over the last several weeks, I I've got a significantly larger number of requests for interviews and chats and things like that, right? And I had to start telling myself okay there's a limited amount of time during the week you have to do these things so you, you need to be picky you need to look into who the, the host is i'm and going what they're to take doing.
0: that as a massive compliment massimo
1: take it as a compliment, because that's thank the you. way it was meant <laughs> thank you very much so that's the exercise
0: i take love it look that is five very cool ways to implement stoicism um i uh, i got I got so much more stuff that I want to talk to you about. So I apologize to the other podcasters who are trying to get you on their show. <laughs> but uh, I am just going to completely monopolize you and I'm going to try and get you back on as soon as I can. It's been good. amazing. Can you tell us, so you've got... Um, a number of different books one of which is more practical and then another one which uh, tell us what what books you've got people yeah Li-
1: live like a stoic uh, in the uk edition is the practical one it's got these 52 exercises from which people can choose you know sample and see how it works for them uh how to be a stoic uh, is my earlier book and it's it's more comprehensive. It, it includes uh, uh, stoic theory a uh, little bit of history It also does have exercises. So it uh, it has a small number of, I think it's about 12 exercises at the end of the book that people can do to start practicing So those are the two things that I would uh, recommend in terms of my books uh, there is a new one coming out in September and it's called a field guide to the to, to a happy life to the happy life and it's basically a rewriting, a 21st century update in rewriting of Epictetus and Enchiridion. The Enchiridion is this classic text uh, of ancient Stoicism, which has been rewritten and updated several times. The Christians used it throughout the Middle Ages as a, a book of spiritual exercises, for instance. And so I decided that as an homage to Epictetus in part, uh, this was time to do a 21st century edition of it. So, How so this cool. is coming out in September. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: <laughs> that must be that must have been a very fun uh, a very fun project for you to work. Yes, on. yes, definitely, that's, definitely. That's awesome. Well selfishly again i don't want to have to wait until september to get you on but let's get you back on ready for that book and then if we can get you on in between brilliant look links to everything that we have gone through will be in the show notes below of course including massimo's twitter which you definitely should go and check out as well any questions comments or feedback just hassle him online or, or give me a tweet or do whatever it is that you want if you're new here like share and subscribe as always but for now massimo it's been so good thank you very much
1: it's been a pleasure man
0: thank you very much for tuning in if you enjoyed the episode please share it with a friend it would make me very happy indeed don't forget if you've got any questions or comments or feedback feel free to message me at chris willex on all social media but for now goodbye friends